You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Hey, my name's Dusty. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you're here. I just want to spend a minute praying together before we jump into our time in the Bible. Uh, I just want to uh, pray. One of our values that we like to pray for, talk about regularly, is we value life from the very beginning, uh, you know, at conception all the way to the very end of life, all kinds of people. And so anything that we have a chance to pray for specifically, we want to. And so you may have noticed in our country, there have been a couple of racially motivated shootings in the last, you know, bit, uh, mass shootings. And so I just want to pray for God's peace and help in the middle of that. So let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we, we, we care about uh, people because you do, and we know these things grieve your heart, and anywhere there's injustice and pain and loss, we want to join you in that. And we ask that you would intervene and that you would bring, uh, bring peace, uh, Prince of Peace, Jesus, um, where there's uh, hatred and division, and you would intervene. You would also bring comfort to um, victims and families, and uh, that there would be a flourishing of all people and unity even in our country that would be a beautiful thing. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, um, let, me, let me start uh, before I jump into, we're going to be in Luke 18 in the passage that Sam read in just a minute, but uh, for those of you that don't know, you may be new, haven't heard this, but this is going to be uh, my last Sunday before my sabbatical, now not permanently. Uh, some of you are like, oh man, that'd be incredible. No, but just, it's going to be just for the summer, and um, you know, we've been communicating with our members about this. I'm just curious, for those that would have been here um, seven years ago when I took my last sabbatical, because uh, we have a provision in our uh, personnel policy for um, our staff leaders every seven years. How many of you were here seven years ago? Just curious. Okay, there you are. Thanks for hanging around. Appreciate that. Uh, so um, that's the, we, our, our, uh, our church is really generous to our leaders, and I really appreciate that giving us every resource doesn't mean that every leader is going to be healthy, but there's every opportunity to be healthy. And um, the idea would be that we do ministry for a long time. That's the hope. So um, I'm going to be off this summer and with the hope of, of just kind of unwinding. I had one of our um, staff members this morning described as unzippering. And I loved that, that I don't think I work harder than any of you guys. I really don't. I think I wish some of you it probably would really benefit you if you could do the same. But here's the occupational hazard of being a pastor is that, um, you know, my spiritual life and friendships and uh, being a pastor, the role that I'm in, it all just kind of gets, you know, kind of zippered up into one thing. And uh, sometimes it's hard to tell, you know, spiritually, like, am I reading this passage because I want, you know, this would be something that you really need to hear? Or is this something that I'm taking for myself and really applying it to my own heart? Am I healthy? Am I walking with the Lord deeply? Um, Can I even... um, can I even do this Christian life without the pastor guy thing? And, and so, and even, you know, trying to help you serve you, which is a beautiful thing. I love doing that. Um, but just getting a, a, the gift of rest one, but um, secondly, just getting to really be healthy, uh, healthy there and having a sense in that. So I really do appreciate it. I'm also like uh, Amy noticed yesterday, like I was a little bit, maybe even depressed. And I also, I've done this before, so I know how it is. A few weeks would be really great, uh, but it ends up being really long. And I actually really enjoy to work. 
Um, I like it. I love the team we've got. I love this church. And so I actually really like what I do and it ends up being kind of long. And so, uh, but again, that's kind of the whole point, right? Is I need to sit in that and um, you can pray for me for just to, to walk deeply with Jesus and for my family too. Uh, that's gonna be what's going on. You're in capable hands. Keenan will explain what's gonna happen with preaching this summer at the end of the service. Uh, but Keenan and Ben are gonna be our co-interim lead pastors. They already basically run this thing as it is. So um, it'll be great. Um, and I'm very confident in that. And hopefully I won't die of a grizzly attack. Although like a, maybe a minor mauling, I think would be a great story. So we'll see, we'll see what happens um, over the course of my summer. So um, here's where, um, where we're gonna go is that the passage we're gonna look to today is um, incredibly compelling, uh, incredible comp- compelling teaching by Jesus that there's never been anybody like him uh, before or since, just really uniquely compelling. And, um, and, and I think you're going to see a really unique specifically about Jesus's humility that's not only going to be taught, but even lived by him that I think is just incredible. Uh, but I would make the case that um, we already are, first of all, compelled by something all the time. And um, that I think that for a lot of us, Jesus is not all that compelling. And I think for a couple of different reasons. For one uh, reason is that I think a lot of us that it could be more intellectual, like doubts. And I've shared even multiple times recently that doubt for me is just a regular part of my Christian experience. And maybe some of you are like that. It's more like intellectual questions about, am I sure there's a God? Is it really the Bible? Is it really Jesus? That kind of thing. That'd be one reason where uh, one explanation why Jesus might not be super compelling to some of us. But then there's like another end of the spectrum that um, if that's more intellectual doubt, I think there's a lot of us that have more like practical doubt where um, you're like, no, I think that God exists and this Jesus in the Bible. But then on a practical level, uh, it might be more to do with a will where um, you wake up one day and you're like, man, I don't want to do that. I know what the Bible says, but I don't want to not be angry. And I don't want to, um, you know, walk down the line of sexuality like the Bible tells me to. And I don't want to um, empty myself out for my spouse and my family. I, don't, I want to live for me and I want to do my thing my way and whatever it is. And and so that, that's like a different expression of doubt. I would say it also has the same issue, though, at the core, and that's that Jesus is not as compelling as this other thing, that there's something else that you think will bring meaning and life. Again, that could be a million different things, a sense of power, control, money, sex, it could be anything, right? Uh, but there's something else that's more compelling to you than Jesus um, that's an, another expression of doubt. Now, um, what I want you to know is no matter where you are on that, that uh, Luke's gospel was written with you in mind. It, the whole point of it is to help us with our belief, uh, whether again, whether it's intellectual or more practical, that the whole thing was written for you. And I think that's gonna be great. And hopefully what we're gonna see today is a more compelling picture of Jesus. Um, even if we haven't had very compelling models, maybe pastors, maybe parents, maybe people around us, maybe a real judgy Christian friend, whatever, um, that something beautifully compelling about Jesus specifically uh, related to his humility. So let's pick up in verse nine and we're gonna reread the story and, um, and then just see what Jesus taught that I think is so unique and beautiful and compelling. All right, so here you go. It says, he also told this parable, and this will tell you the, his audience, to the, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that tells you up front like who the target audience of this little parable is. Is there some people there with their arms crossed and felt pretty good about themselves? I mean, bluntly kind of thought they were up here and other people are kind of down here. And so that's who he's talking to. And then he's gonna introduce the main two characters of the parable now. 
It says, two men went into the temple to pray. All right, so two people both doing a religious, uh, religious exercise. That's a good thing. Praying is good. Um, and he introduces the two characters, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, let me just briefly explain uh, these two characters to you. So the Pharisee uh, would be a, a very deeply committed religious person, a Jewish person that was actually really serious about their faith. Uh, now, a lot of times, if you've been raised in church, you immediately would start like booing this character right now. But here's what's interesting is that, um, that kind of like how right now, there are loads of people in West Texas that are like, well, you know, look, I believe in, in something about God and Jesus and in the Statue of Liberty and in Red Raider football and like all the, all the important stuff, you know, and like I, I'm, I'm a good person and I do, I do all the stuff, you know, and, I'm, and you know, my granddaddy was a preacher and, and that kind of thing, you know, that, that Christianity is part of their heritage. They don't like, they can't really tell you anything that's different in their life because of their faith in Jesus, but it's kind of, uh, and some of those morals still continue on and they pass them down to their children. And there were people like that in Jesus's day too, you know, that were kind of Jews by heritage and thought they were fine because their granddaddy was a rabbi or something like that, you know, and still held to the morality of Judaism and maybe occasionally would go to synagogue and, you know, make some appearances at the temple. Um, but really it wasn't really part of their life. That wasn't these people. Like these were the serious people, the people that might've been on a church staff. They might've been, um, they might've been deacons. They might've been leading the women's Bible study. They might've, these were the kind of people, Hunter Beaumont made this point when talking about Pharisees this last fall. I mean, the guy that's about to be introduced here in a second, the Pharisee, would probably be the kind of guy deeply committed in his marriage, um, you know, very consistent there with their t- this, at the synagogue, that this would have been the kind of guy that when you're at a career crossroads or maybe you were having trouble in your marriage or you had a major financial decision to make, this would probably be the guy you'd want to go take to breakfast and say, all right, what do you think about this? You know, he'd take a sip of black coffee and uh, say, all right, here's what you do. And like that, that's who these people were, deeply, deeply committed and serious about it all, very serious. Now, the tax collector uh, would be, and by the way, the crowd, you just heard his tar- target audience. So when he introduced the Pharisee, um, they would have been you know, like cheering, clapping, you know, giving a boo or whatever. You know, they would have been, they'd have been really fired up. And, and then, the, uh, then, then he introduces the second person, which would be a tax collector. And I've had on this a bunch in this short series through uh, Luke over the last few weeks, but uh, tax collector would just be shorthand for the worst. I mean, really, that at that time, these are the worst people because... I mean, first of all, they're cozied up to the Romans who are occupiers. This would be, I made this analogy a few weeks ago talking about Zacchaeus. These would have been the people that Nazi occupiers in like Denmark or um, in um, um, you know, France or something like that, that they put puppet governments up and they'd have these collaborators that were working there with the Nazi regime and taking advantage of their own people and all that. That's what these people were. They're cozy with the people that were in power, um, the Romans. And furthermore, while they're collecting taxes for those people, they're actually putting extra money in their own pocket. I mean, these are the worst. And uh, so you have those are the two people. Uh, that crowd there would have all booed, you know. Uh, these would have been the least popular people. And honestly, there would have been immediate dissonance even in telling the story that uh, both of these people are going to pray. And they would have been like, are you sure that the second one's going to pray? Uh, are, are, you, are you positive about that? Or is he just going to network or spy on people? Or I mean, they would have been even probably skeptical of the fact that the tax collector would be going to pray. Okay, so see how the, the parable um, carries on. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, which is also 
uh, I think pretty indicative of his posture of, you know, probably being a little better than everybody else, prayed thus, God, I think you, I'm not as bad as these people. And he kind of offers a list. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to read the list, but I want you to notice that every one of these things, in fact, is a bad thing. Uh, every one of these things that he says, thank you so much that I'm not as bad as these people. Um, extortioners. So can we all agree it's not good to extort people for money uh, because you're in power or something like that. Unjust. It's not good to be unjust. Uh, adulterers. It's not good to run around on your spouse. Can we all agree? Um, or even... Even like this guy, uh, the tax collector. And again, tax collectors were several of those things. They had extorted people for money. They were unjust. And there's a lot of things. They're even, even on this list that would have also been the tax collector. But his prayer is a strange one because it's a prayer to God, but it's kind of a prayer to himself almost at the same time. Uh, there's no like thankfulness towards God. Uh, there's no tenderheartedness towards God. It's a Thank you that I'm so awesome, Lord. And it even goes on. Uh, so thank you that I'm not as bad as these people. But now, God, I'd like to continue on with what I'm so awesome at. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So uh, fasting would be a spiritual discipline. I think we can agree that it's a beautiful thing to dedicate yourself to the Lord, fasting, prayer, Bible reading. And he was uber committed. Any of you people fast twice a week? And I'm not talking that you don't have time for breakfast or you're on a diet of intermittent fasting or whatever. You know, I'm talking about you say don't, don't eat for a day so you can pray. Um, that's pretty committed. Can we agree? Um, and then furthermore, um, gives tithes of all that he gets. So he's consistently, money comes in and he's giving a significant portion of his income right as it comes in. Um, we have been on a journey for a couple of years at this church talking about generosity. It's a beautiful thing to be generous with money. Um, the scripture commands it, all that. So this person's staying away from a lot of the big ticket sins um, where he's not running around on a spouse. He's not stealing money. He's uh, not um, you know unjust and He's not, um, you know, a collaborator with an evil regime in Rome, and he's not, he's not doing this. And furthermore, he's checking all the religious boxes. Again, um, the, the Pharisees and people that would be listening to this parable would, you know, they would be, they would be like, yep, exactly. And, um, and, you know, would be kind of as people are hearing this story. I don't understand the punchline to this parable. But then I think it gets clear here um, where the tax collector standing far off. So he doesn't even feel like he can go mix up with all these righteous, awesome people because this person's lived some life. They know that they're a mess. They know that people hate them. They know they've done wrong, right? And um, he won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. Um, doesn't even feel worthy to address God. Um, so can you imagine it? Like off, standing over here and... Um, he, he lifts up to heaven, beats his breast, meaning like, like it's hard for him even to choke out the words. I've been so bad. I've been such a mess. I've done bad things. And, uh, but then he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he chokes out. There's no, Father, verily I say unto thee. You know, there's none of, there's none of all these big words and, and thank you that I'm not this and this. And furthermore, thank you that, you know, they're, they're all, all it is, he chokes out a sentence and he's like, I need grace. Like, I need mercy. Like, I'm a sinner. I, I've messed up, and I need you. Like, I'm dependent on you. And, I, and remember how this whole thing started is that it's a parable to people who trusted in themselves and thought that they were righteous. And so they don't really need God. Like, they don't, they don't think that they're a sinner. They don't think that they need him. And then Jesus um, explains it all. And he says, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, uh, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
I mean, it's incredible. I mean, have you ever heard teaching like that? Because I haven't, you know, I mean, it's incredible what Jesus pointed towards. It's very different than what you would expect. Because what I would expect, you know, a Jewish Messiah, the Christ, I would expect Jesus to say, y'all need to be more like the Pharisee guy. I mean, y'all need to be picking it up. You guys need to be much more committed than you are. Uh, You need to be much holier than you are. And uh, you need to be handling your money much better. And you need to be much, your spiritual disciplines need to be much further along. And you would expect that the story would be, um, and this is how every world religion goes, is you ought to be more devoted than you are. You ought to be more committed than you are. So pick it up. Let's go. You know, like that, that's religion in a nutshell. Bluntly, uh, this is the dark underbelly of religion. It really is, is that of all kinds, but I would include Christianity in this, that some of you perhaps are here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe you used to do that stuff but you don't anymore. And um, one of the reasons might be that you got really turned off to people that felt a lot like the Pharisee in this story. Like that, you experienced them this way and it's nothing could ever be good enough. And they were up here and they made sure you knew that a lot, that they had the right opinions, they had the right lifestyle, they had all the right stuff here. And you could just kind of sense their disdain. It was almost dripping off of them. You could see it on their social media. You could pick it up in your conversations and they were up here and you and everybody else were down here. Maybe you did make some mistakes that you could even admit, but the way they encountered you was graceless and they kind of blew you up in the middle of it all and that just the judginess of, of it all um, like really like damaged you and it even made you think, well, if, if they are like that, then I don't know if I want much to do with God. I don't know if I do. Um, and, and so some of us have had an experience like that uh, or maybe lots of them. And, and bluntly, I'll even say that like I've been in, in church work my whole life and I'll say that um, some of the meanest, most judgmental, self-righteous people that I've ever met have been religious people. But you can see how it creates itself is that like it kind of can, if, if you're not careful, that deep commitment, that deep commitment is like, I know the Bible now and uh, my life is cleaned up, at least on the big stuff. And of course, that's a subtext of this. That's an interesting definition of sin because if they're searching their heart, Jesus' parable probably wouldn't be that much of a shock um, because pride would also be a major problem, maybe the biggest problem of all. Um, but, but it can kind of inflame uh, and inflate someone's ego. If I'm up here, I know the Bible and I don't do the, the terrible things and I vote a certain way and I do this and I do this and I do this and you people don't do any of this and all the really righteous people talk amongst themselves about how bad the world is out there and how messed up people are and there's no sense of humility. Uh, there's no sense of dependence. There's no sense of, of even sin of... Uh, um, like it's that prayer of, you know, and I'm a sinner, I'm not exactly sure how, but if I have sinned, then Lord, forgive me, you know, that kind of thing. But it's never specific. It's never a sense of like that right there was broken and sad. And, um, and I would even say, um, just as a, the correction for this crowd is, and it should, this should really make our ears perk out up, especially if you are pretty committed here. Uh, there's nothing wrong with deep, being deeply, deeply committed. In fact, spiritual disciplines and church attendance and generosity and not running around on your spouse, those are all beautiful things. Uh, but I would just say this, that if the sentence is being deeply committed to Jesus, where we can go wrong is if the emphasis falls on deeply committed and Jesus is in like six point font on that sentence, 
that rather um, what should be in six point font is the deeply committed side and Jesus being in like 24 point font, right? That, that that's where, that's where um, hopefully if Jesus is the focus, then we have a different orientation around um, the fasting and prayer and Bible study and church attendance and a, and a different perspective on even if there, there are areas of moral strength and obedience to the Lord, that those things are for Jesus. And if we are being generous, it's for Jesus. And if we are, everything that um, th- those things are generated out of love for Jesus. And yet we simultaneously are always in touch with what's fallen and broken. And um, that sense of dependence and need is always there, um, which just immediately takes the sting of self-righteousness out of our lips, uh, the way that we live and everything else. Now, this other person, this tax collector is the one that's lifted up here. Now, it's important to say what they're not, because I think how a lot of us are, are hearing this sermon is like... That's what I'm talking about, man. You're taking, you're taking all these uptight religious people to task, which is shocking that you're doing that. And I would say that Jesus is doing that. But you need to understand the tax collector isn't just living a self-indulgent life because that's how you could read this and be like, see, everybody just needs to chill out and we need to live our life and do our thing and do whatever we want to do. But that's not the posture of this tax collector at all. Um, this tax collector is saying, look, I'm needy and, um, and like, I don't, I don't want to live that way. Like I, I've lived that life and I've done all those things and I've felt the judgment of all these people while I live this life. And, but I know I've done wrong and I don't even know how to relate with them and I don't even know how to relate with you. I don't know any of those things, but like I, what I know is I, I want mercy. Like I want to, I want a new direction. I want a new life. So if the first person was self-righteous and um, that that's a major loss right there, um, that, um, that, that that's the first person in the story. The second person in the story is self-indulgent. Uh, could be. That would be the, their past. Uh, but that now has come to an end and they're now saying, I, I have a dependence. I am needy. I am a sinner. I need grace. And um, this teaching is just so compelling to me because it's almost none of the things that you would expect Jesus to say, and yet that's what he does. And he, what he's really doing here is saying to the religious person in the room, he's saying, I have a better, a better future for you, that um, the way you're living is no life at all. Like to be that angry all the time and to be that mad all the time, and like you, can, you can't ever be wrong, you can't ever have weakness, you can't ever have struggles in your marriage, you can't have um, struggles in your Christian life, like you can't let anybody in on that and it is exhausting to keep up appearances like that. Exhausting. And it's an invitation to say, well, come, come on. Come on out. It's okay. You don't have to have it all together. Just be dependent. And this is why he came. And then it's even an invitation for those of us that, that I mean, you really identify with this tax collector that even being here at church, you're like not wanting to keep eye contact and you knew what happened last night or you knew what happened five years ago and you've never felt worthy. You feel like you need to be making it up to God. You've got this problem. You've got this addiction. You've got this past. You've got this whatever. This whole story should encourage you because he's saying, look, let's, that, that self-indulgence has got you nowhere. Uh, but what would happen if you were just to come, uh, come to God needy and dependent he will not turn you away. He'll be gentle with you. He'll hear you and it'll be beautiful to him. And you belong just as surely as anybody else in here would belong. So there's the compelling teaching that I think is incredible. What I want to end on is look at Jesus's compelling life. Because one thing for people to teach something really great, another thing for somebody to do something really great. Look at Jesus on his last day and his worst day in Luke 23. Check this out. Um, So there's two others who are criminals were led away to be put to death with him. So two criminals are going to be put on both sides of Jesus um, as they crucify him. Um, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, where they crucified him, 
um, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 34, Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And uh, now you're about to start seeing a bunch, a series of like offenses that are just like, uh, like it just it makes me, makes me mad. Uh, Jesus is a lot uh, better of a person than me for a million reasons. Uh, you see, they cast lots to divide his garments. Now I'm just going to stop for a second. Um, what we know from the Bible is that Jesus is the word of God, along with the father and the spirit created the universe. All right. So I'm talking like Adam's. Like he made, he made all that, like the expansive space Jesus made, like he spoke them into existence. Let there be light. Like it happens, right? Um, even the complex design of the human body, um, we're talking um, central nervous system, um, cardiovascular system, kidneys, liver, all like he, there's a lab somewhere where Jesus had goggles on. I'm not, but I mean, he, he came up with the ideas, all right? He, he designed it in his head, so to speak, and then spoke it into existence, all right? And then the people, like he came up with a design for the human race and the people that he designed um, are, are about to do unspeakable things to him, starting with dividing his garments. He's naked on a cross, so he's being shamed. And if that isn't enough, people are gambling, like they're throwing dice and you know, rolling it out there to see who gets the, you know. Can you imagine the people that he made, like he designed, spoke into existence. And then, then the mocking starts. Um, the rulers uh, scoffed in verse 35 and said, he saved others, let him save himself. Um, and if he's the Christ, if he's the Messiah of God, the chosen one. So now the rulers are going, local, save yourself. If you're so big and bad, do it. And then the soldiers, just common soldiers that are there kind of patrolling the streets, making sure things don't get rowdy. Um, they mocked him coming up and offering sour wine um, and, uh, and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, you know, come on, same thing. Uh, there was an inscription over him that was intended to mock. Uh, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals right next to him. Again, a human being that he designed in concept and right there. Like he knit that dude together in his mother's womb. Like he put, and the vocal cords that he helped design and the brain that he put together that could construct thoughts and sentences, that brain and those vocal cords are about to say, um, um, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, I don't know how you would respond to this. Um, I, I, I would be tempted to call in an artillery strike with GPS coordinates on my exact position. Uh, but um, rather, um, the other person rebukes this guy and says, do you not fear God since you um, are under the same sentence of condemnation? Uh, and we indeed justly, in other words, like we deserve to die. Like we've done, our, we've done a crime and now we're about to, to pay for it. And it says, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this guy hadn't done anything wrong. He didn't deserve to die. And so, this, so he corrects the guy over there and then he says, uh, hey, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Will you remember me? So this would be like, this would be like that tax collector saying, um, they can't even look into heaven. Like this guy's a criminal. Like he's done bad things, bad enough that the Roman government's killing him for him. And 
at that 11th hour, he says, will you remember me? Will you have mercy? Just like the tax collector. That was one thing for Jesus to tell the parable. And another thing for Jesus to not um, have any retribution or not say, hey, we'll see in a few years and see if y'all are still talking big or any of that. He just is silent through all of it. This guy right here asks for mercy. And then what does Jesus do? He says, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he extends grace exactly like what he taught. He actually lived. And it was the sixth hour, darkness over the whole land. Sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple that divided us from God was torn into two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And so I just can't believe this, that he would, he designed these people that were cursing him, mocking him, and kind of egging him on. And he entrusted his reputation to the Father and then extended grace because of his death and resurrection that were about to happen to this guy that asked for mercy. Even the guy that was being similarly shamed, he extended mercy to him. Um, it's really incredible. And so I just think this couldn't be more compelling. I mean, his life is so compelling. The humility of Jesus, what he pointed towards, what he taught. Um, I'm not compelled by religious people that are real mad and angry and think they're better than anybody. I don't think you are either. I don't think that kind of person has ever um, been compelling to a single human being alive. I also don't think um, the self-indulgent lifestyle of whatever you want to do to maximize your pleasure in any given moment um, brings life either. Um, that, that, that ends up being a dead end similarly. Rather, what all of this teaching and Jesus's life take us to a point of, look, man, we need, we are not self-sufficient and we need the grace of Jesus. And so if we're able to humble ourselves, and this is really where this whole thing goes into two, two things that I think are the takeaways from Jesus's life and teaching is the first one is uh, to be compelled by Jesus's humility, both his life and his teaching, that there's something compelling here that's a lot more beautiful than all the things we're trying to construct and the life we're trying to leave, live and uh, trying to be powerful and important and beautiful and um, have lots of money and incredible kids, all the stuff. We're chasing all these different things uh, and even religious attainments and um, that rather there's this invitation um, to look at Jesus and see what's so beautiful about his grace through the cross and resurrection. So to be compelled by Jesus, the second part is even begin to imitating it. And my deep hope for us as a church is man, it would kill me if what we were is around town is the people that are constantly, you know, you know, just shaking our heads that we're up here and um, everybody else are down here. And here's the thing is this is something you can't fake. If you think you're up here and you're better than everybody else, it will, it will absolutely leak out in a million different ways. It'll come out in your social media presence. It'll come out in your friendships. It'll come out in your parenting. It'll come out in your leadership at work. It'll come out. It just can't help but come out. Uh, but what would happen if we really believe that we are needy and dependent and needy of grace and needy of a touch from God and needy for Jesus' death and resurrection to reframe our heart and our loves and the direction of we're going in, what would happen if we really believed that? Would it not change how we look at people around us in this room that we're not better than anybody? In fact, um, there'd be an invitation for the broken person in here that doesn't feel like that they are good enough and they don't feel like they can let people in on their struggles and they're so afraid of being found out. We could be like, come on, man, come on, like, 
I, I may struggle with different things, but why not together, why don't we come before the throne of grace and meet Jesus um, crucified and resurrected who is so tender and so kind and he will not turn the uh, hardcore religious self-righteous person away. There are loads of stories like that in the New Testament. He also won't turn the person away that's broken and has been fried by life, has made bad decisions. There will be an invitation there of grace and kindness. And why don't we just lock arms and go there together and he won't turn a single person away. And that is why Jesus is like no one else that's ever lived. And man, I loved, and grace incredible, truly. I mean, I just never get tired of talking about it. I hope all of us today even have an encounter today with this God of grace. So let me pray. Lord, would you, uh, would you imprint us with this grace and there would be this kind of dependence that Jesus demonstrated, but also he taught and that it would be more compelling than everything else. And our self-righteousness would be confronted and eroded self-indulgence would be confronted and eroded. Rather, there would be a dependence and a sweet moment of grace that we experience from you today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.